Hey, what's going on everybody? Uh, welcome back to the channel. I am here live with my first live interview with Hannah Cox. We are at Manuel's Tavern in Ponzi Highlands, Atlanta. Um, so we are here, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the $15 minimum wage, um, what the hazards of that are, and then what um, of modern monetary theory. Um, but again, so this location that we're at, please go support. Um, there's going to be a link in the description um, to their GoFundMe page because this site has been hit pretty hard from the, uh, the pandemic. So make sure you go support them, um, show them what volunteerism is all about. So welcome. So good to be with you. I'm excited to meet you in person. Know, We've really been Twitter good. friends for a few years, I think. Yeah, I think At least right. a year, but probably longer than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. I think you're, prob you're probably right about that. Um, and so I wanted to have you on and, and have you come in because, I mean, I have a degree in business, but, and so I know like the issues between the $15 minimum wage hike, but modern monetary theory is something that's, it, it's almost new age that I didn't even learn in school. So I'm still Well, it's totally behind. made up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's another one of these subjects that I wanted to get some, an expert as yourself and who better than somebody that's working for, you know. What is it? Uh, what's B stand for? The Foundation for Economic Education. Yes. So um, it's kind of your forte, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because people always assume that I'm an economist or that I went to school for economics. They'll say, what did you do to get into your line of work? And I'm like, actually, my degree is in music business. So. <laughs> but that's the great thing about economics. You know, growing up, I was never particularly good at math. I really was not yeah. someone who would ever have thought I'd be working in the econ field. But what happened for me was I was given a book called The Law by Frederick Bastiat. I read it a number of years ago, and it was in reading that that I started to realize economics was really a lot more about studying human action, you know, yeah. what we would call praxeology. And there's actually, um, you know, when you get to the mathematic components, all of that's really sort of made up and it kind of is of a totally different school than what I adhere to, which is the Austrian school of economics. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's encouraging for people. You don't have to like math. You don't have to like graphs. You can actually study economics and really get to understand um, its mechanics in a way that is ascertainable and actually even interesting because yeah. we're looking at what choices do people make? How do we interact in a free society? Um, and, and when you start moving into things like modern monetary theory or Keynesian economics, what they're really trying to do is figure out how do you micromanage an economy, right? How do you make all these decisions and pull all these strings that are going to perfectly orchestrate the lives of 330 yeah. million people? It's a joke. You can't do yeah. that. You need to actually remove those barriers from people's lives, let them make free choices, um, and not impede those things. People will make the best choices for themselves if given the opportunity to. Absolutely, and, and I think that's the big thing, and we've been even been seeing, you know, like the Libertarian parties out there, I think with even New Hampshire, which we won't get into the whole issues in New Hampshire right now, but they actually pointed out the other day about child labor laws and everything like that, and, and how they, are actually a hindrance to the economy instead of, you know, promoting safe working conditions and everything like that. The reason why they were meant to, um, they were kind of meant to, you know, regulate the marketplace in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're, they're a barrier for individuals. You know, I love right. talking about child labor because I was a child who liked to work under the table growing up. Yeah. And I loved to yeah. work. It was my favorite thing in the world. And, and I had all kinds of jobs. And it taught me so much. It also taught me financial skills. But it gave me a really strong work ethic. And had I really not been allowed to do that um, and prevented from doing that, I would have been starting off much further behind Absolutely. by the time I entered the work field or by the time I entered college. Yeah. So I, I 
understand why those laws were put into place, but in actuality, they really have ended up hurting the individual more than protecting them. Yeah, and that's there was a tweet that went viral the other day of a, of a 14-year-old working at Burger King, and this tweet actually said, this is so sad. And I'm like, why is this sad? He's learning a skill. He's learning to work. Um, and I'm the same as you. I mean, I've, I like to work and do stuff like that. I like being productive. Um, I think it teaches something that is kind of lost on most of society nowadays. Most people just want to sit home and do nothing. So. That's right. And I mean, if you look back at all of history, the idea that working at 14 is somehow sad or hurting the person is hysterical. You know, yeah. kids used to have to work long hours in the fields alongside their families just to put food on the table. There's nothing yeah. wrong with working. Oh, and that's the other thing is that child labor laws do not protect children from working for their families. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between a family or a close personal friend? Right. Exactly. Nothing. nothing. But... Okay, so let's dive into what we're actually talking about, though. <laughs> Which Sorry is to so take let's, us off. Let, let, no, 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 no. I've told you is we just we just go where it kind of goes with. But um, the fight for fifteen right now, um, it's being pushed. Um, I was completely shocked. I need to get off Clubhouse at like ten o'clock at night because somebody in a debates channel had said something like seventy five percent of people support the $15 minimum wage. But what really does the minimum wage hike, what would it hurt? Like, what does it do to the economy? Yeah, you know, first and foremost, I never trust a poll. As somebody who's <laughs> yeah. administered polls, you can get polls to say a lot of things if you know how to ask the right questions, and who to ask and that kind of thing. So, yeah, right. But <laughs> I do think that more people that I'm comfortable with are misled on the benefits of yeah. the minimum wage, right? And, and it just really shows us that we're not giving our students a solid economic foundation because when we talk about the problems with the minimum wage, we're getting into the very basics of economics, you know? Yeah. And we're getting into this idea, once again, that you can somehow interject between employee and uh, their employer and have a better negotiator in the government than you can as an individual. Yeah. Um, ultimately, what we see with a minimum wage is that the real minimum wage is zero. Um, ultimately, if you continue to move the dollar amount that someone has to be paid to do a job above what the actual value of that labor is, we ultimately always see companies scale back the number of workers that they're yeah. hiring. They especially start to scale back in those entry-level um, fields. And that's where, you know, again, it's so essential that people get those early entry-level jobs. And hopefully yeah. they get them young and are able to move far past what a minimum wage job would be by the time they're in college or, yeah. or graduated from college. But when we're preventing people from getting access to that, then they don't get to develop those skills. They don't get to actually increase the value of their labor to where then they are worth more, have higher yeah. demand on the market. So there's a real social capital that's involved with the minimum wage. And, you know, we can look at what would happen if we gave people this amount of money uh, not only would that then push a lot of people out of work, eliminate a lot of jobs, but we also would see that employers always pass those costs on through their products. And so you see that the, um, the, the products they're producing, those things would increase too. And so then the dollar continuously becomes worth less. Yep. And that's something I like to point to a lot. People talk a lot about why they don't make more. They need to be asking why their dollar can't buy more. And exactly. if you watch what's been happening under things like modern monetary theory mm-hmm. for the past couple of decades, we've increasingly been devaluing the dollar. And that's the real reason that people can't keep up with the rents. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can see that. And the thing, and that's, that's the big issue with the $15 minimum wage, is the cost of labor getting passed on causing inflation. And now most people didn't think inflation was really a big deal, but then I paid four seventy five for gas the other day. So yeah, it's <laughs> now such I, a, I buy premium, but, but still, <laughs> it's still four seventy five for gas when I was paying three twenty five like three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, is or before whenever the the hack happened, it's like 
that's not just that. I paid probably $20 more for two steaks than I did the other day, yeah. you know? So we are seeing inf inflation happening awesome. real time and it's starting to spiral out of control. A $15 minimum wage would just completely end that. And you, when you see companies that are like Amazon and Walmart and all that, they are pushing for this $15 minimum wage because they know they're the only ones that can pay it. A company like this that we're in right now, they would be out of business if they had to provide a $15 minimum wage. They can't sustain it. It's not good for small businesses, and it's a barrier to entry for small businesses. And for the individual, you know, yet again, I've watched this with, I have four, or I have three younger siblings, there's four of us, yeah. I was the oldest, and I always had lots of access to jobs when I was coming up. You know, when I was uh, 16, I was working yeah. at a grocery store, then I watched my two younger siblings, by the time they got to high school, under the Obama era, they couldn't get those entry-level jobs. Absolutely. Why? Because they kept jacking these prices up because now you had people who were a bit more educated, had more work experience competing for those same entry-level jobs. And so in high school, they didn't get that entry-level job experience. They instead had to do things like babysit or go work outside in lawn yeah. care. They couldn't get their foot in the door in that way, and it, it hurt them in some in some way. So it's not yeah. just the small business owner or employer yeah. that it hurts. It hurts the individual as well. well. I think the stats, and it's from... You know the CBO, which is the one that kind of tells Congress who you know how much these bills are going to cost, and it uh, the CBO estimated that it would pull what 1.4 million out of poverty, but it would get rid of as much as 2.4 million jobs. Mm -hmm. I think that alone shows that it's not a you know it's not it's not reasonable to even think about that um, because you're right because companies that can afford it will automate. At some point, there's a threshold where automating is better than the civil side of paying workers to do something for more than they're worth. That's right. And the really interesting thing to me about this is that, you know, you have the left who constantly harps on the problems with big corporations, these big greedy corporations, and, and especially, you know, they attack Amazon and Walmart for some of their employment practices. But if you consistently push small businesses out of the picture and you limit the competition in the market, you know, these big companies know that then not only do they not have the competition in the actual marketplace, but they don't have the competition for employees, yeah. which is also a very hard oh, yeah. thing to come by, good employees. Yeah. What happens then? The employees have less options for places they can go work. They have less negotiating power if they don't like how they're being treated at one company. Yeah. This is something that is harmful for everybody, except for the big conglomerate companies that are going to push everybody out and have total control of the workforce. It's just oh. a very short-sighted idea to push for this. Well, and what people also don't look at is where it's been tried look at Seattle for example the people are actually making less per year than what they ever made in the first place um, at their at their old wage because they're actually working a whole lot less overtime because companies aren't willing to provide more overtime they'll put they'll, they'll create three shifts instead of having two shifts that work overtime because they can they actually can pay less in that regard mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that $15 minimum wage has always done is it is another way to print money for government. The only people that actually gain anything is government because it puts more people into higher tax brackets and it brings, it brings wealth down, which ultimately creates more tax revenue for them, even though all they're doing is creating more inflation. That's exactly right. And we consistently see that, you know, anytime you see government pushing for these kinds of policies, <laughs> promise, I promise you, they're going to get their cut of it. <laughs> because not only do then companies have to pay this higher minimum wage, but then it pushes up the cost of labor for people who are more educated, who yeah. do have a higher value. Because then, you know, if I'm getting paid 
$18 of the college graduate per hour, all of a sudden I see this 16-year-old kid getting paid the same thing. I'm going to go and demand more money, and I'm probably going to get it. Um, and so it just it continues to push everything up and up and up. But notably, people can't buy more things. People don't actually have more wealth. Yeah. The dollar amount just keeps going up, and we're kind of in this endless spiral. It just makes more people poor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then the, the, the question I've seen quite a bit, too, is... Um, and it kind of goes with taxes and stuff like that, is if we can just print money, why do we even have taxes? And I think that kind of <laughs> leads into modern monetary theory as it well, does. correct? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting theory. As I said, I didn't go to school for economics either, so I'm, I'm glad I didn't because I probably would have had that shoved down my throat. That's mostly what they teach. Uh, but, you know, MMT is a newer theory. It's really been around for a couple of decades. It's funny, I was reading this book recently about the election um, between Barry Goldwater and, and JFK, and and they were talking about, uh, the writer was talking about how JFK had this huge breakthrough that you didn't have to balance the budget. And it was a yeah. left-wing author, so he was kind of praising it. And I was yeah. like, this was the downfall of our society. You think <laughs> this is a good thing that you thought we didn't have to budget the budget? Yeah, I was just yeah. off on a tirade. But that's kind of the origins of it, was this idea yeah. all of a sudden that we didn't need to balance the checkbook, that we could just keep spending money, just keep printing money, and it would all sort of work out. We've seen that that has failed time and time again throughout the past couple of decades while we've been sort of trying this. And what we see happen is that they'll sort of have an administration that goes full throttle into that, and then they'll start to pull back as the economy starts to collapse and things start to really go downhill. Make sure it's still recording. <laughs> still <in>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make sure it's still Just recording. Chat away. <laughs> <laughs> it would have we been like, oh, sure, we gotta do this again. We gotta do it all <laughs> over again. Okay. But yeah, so I mean, I think what you see with with the idea behind modern monetary theory is that inflation doesn't matter and that you don't have to balance your bills and that you don't have to really have this kind of accountability and they know that it's not true because yeah. if ultimately they truly believe that why would we have taxes exactly. you know exactly well and from what i've read about modern monetary theory is that taxation is needed in order to curb that inflation right so because when you print more money to put that money into the marketplace, they need to tax it to pull that money back out of the marketplace so that it's not so worthless, right? That's working so well for them. <laughs> I mean, we're, we, we still show that we're $27 trillion in debt right now. Exactly. So it really doesn't make much sense yet. And they're still trying to tax more and more and more. And it's not really even taking hold because you can see all the politicians in Washington being like, no, we need to tax you more. We need to raise taxes in order to be able to pay for this. But if if modern monetary theory was correct, then we wouldn't need to do that, you know? <laughs> right, that's exactly right. And I have to also sort of go off on a tyrant here, but like, they, I think it is such an elitist argument. You know, I often also hear them say that inflation's not a big deal. It's not, you know, a very big deal. You're silly for worrying about this. And I am not that far removed from having to live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. You know, I remember that. I remember graduating college. I remember working my first couple of jobs. I remember struggling. I remember like wondering if I could fill up my tank with gas fully because I wasn't going to have enough, you know, to totally yeah. fill it up and that kind of thing. Like to suggest that it's not a big deal for gas to go up by a dollar a gallon in a number of oh. a couple of, you know, weeks. Mm -hmm. To suggest that it's not a big deal for the price of groceries to be escalating something like $60, you know, over the past couple of months. Like yeah. that's a huge deal to millions of families, yeah. to millions of people across this country, and even to people who it's not, you know, taking literal food out of their mouth. It is still making them poorer. It is still reducing the number of things they can buy, the experiences they have, what they can yeah. save for their future. It is a huge deal, and I'll never get over that kind of very elitist attitude of this just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to you. At this point, what matter? What what difference does it make? 
Right. That's always. How often do we have to hear that phrase from them? What difference does it what make? Does, what difference does after it make? After Hillary, <laughs> after Fauci's lies, now with inflation, what difference does it make? It they just yeah. keep they're, they're, wrecking gonna, people's lives. They're going to keep pushing until we are Venezuela. And exactly. that's really what it is. And that's what, I mean, that's where their policies are headed. You know, I did a whole episode on my show based about this, looking at their claims of democratic socialism being so different. They're always pointing at, you know, Switzerland and Sweden. Look over here, look over here. Don't look over here at Venezuela. But when you dig into it, the policies that they're pushing don't look like the policies that the Norwegian countries actually have in the books. They look like the policies on yeah. the book in Venezuela. Well, and that's a good point because most of those Norwegian companies actually have more capitalism than we have here. I mean, yeah. they are more free market ideas than what we have. And, and our government likes to propagate them because they call themselves socialists because they can provide some basic necessities that they want to provide but it's not doing the same amount of you know taxation and everything like that that we're that they're trying to propagate here that's right you know if you look at these countries they do have big social programs and they do have very high taxes you know even the average person we're talking low to middle income is paying 50 plus percent of their income what do they get for that well, they get free education, although my research shows they still come out with a good amount of debt, actually. Uh, they get free child care. They get free health care. You know, if you ask me if I get these three things, is it worth 50-plus percent of my income? Absolutely not. You no. know, not at all. And aside from that, when you really look at their economics, when you really look at their policies on the books, they are more of a free market society than we are, and they really don't have many of the things that you hear people like AOC or Bernie Sanders pushing for. You certainly don't see them employing many of these practices of the MMT kind of scheme going on, and and that's because they did try it. You know, it's true that they had had sort of a blip in the 70s, 80s, 90s where they did start moving more towards socialism and and more towards a government-controlled economy, and it went really poorly from them. They went from being very wealthy countries to really going bankrupt, and so in the 90s, they started clawing their way back and moving back towards free market capitalism, which has been very good for them. Yes. They, they do do very well as far as their GDP and as far as uh, the quality of life that they have there. Yeah, and throughout even our history, we know that government spending, more government spending does not create more wealth. Um, just look back at FDR's New Deal. The New Deal, <laughs> <laughs> so the New Deal actually created, um, it's estimated by most economists that it extended the Great Depression by about seven years. Right. Um, every time we've cut taxes on individuals in this country, our revenue has had, we've had record revenues, even under the Trump administration. Though they were minimal, we had record revenues. Um, and then now we want to, again, add more taxes on business, which people, when I, people don't understand that when I say businesses don't pay taxes, it's not because they're using loopholes. It's because they're making you pay those taxes which again is just raising the cost of the good. The businesses don't care. They're gonna make their money. They're just gonna pass it to you, the customer, and put it in the price. And they know that they can cut enough wages and they can automate enough with the big companies that they don't have to, that they can push um, you know, mom and pop shops out of the market. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's frustrating, and I think especially for people like us who pay a lot of attention to history and what's been done, it's frustrating when you can point to, like, this having been tried before, and we know how this is going to go. We've seen it done over and over and over again. Yes. Um, and I think if there's one thing we as libertarians could impart to people is that companies don't pay taxes, and countries don't pay tariffs. You do. You're the people exactly. there. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I just saw an article the other day where Trump lied when he said that those countries Yeah, that taxes. was Brad's article, actually. It was Brad's. Yeah. <laughs> so Brad's article. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, your screen's off again, so. Okay, now let's I'm on, check this. Now I'm on duty. <laughs> there you go. Making okay. sure we're still up. 
but yeah, I think if people could really wrap their minds around that, they'd start to kind of understand like that these talking points are just that. They're just talking points. They Absolutely. never work out for you, the consumer. And we do know what does produce wealth. And you know, I had numerous issues with Trump. I was not a Trump supporter and, and was really aghast at some things that happened under that administration. But yeah. when it came to the economics of it, he had a lot of good policies and we did see yeah. an immediate turnaround. You know, we've been in a very sluggish economy under Obama yeah. for years. I had graduated college into one of the worst economies since the Great Depression. I remember those days. It was hard for people to get work. It's hard to get yeah. jobs. They said that my generation would lose, you know, over a million dollars over the course of our working life because we started off so much more behind yeah. in our in our early careers. And once Trump came in, things started to turn around really quickly. We did see the price of goods start to fall. We saw that there were more jobs, so many jobs. You know, there were it was like a job everywhere you looked. There there really were a lot of gains being made. And, and I don't think anybody can argue with that. So it's very frustrating to have experienced that and to watch it and to see people just want to rewrite history and pretend it didn't happen. Well, and they want to pretend it didn't happen because he, they forced it all to go away when they, when they forced COVID. Right. You know, when they forced the COVID lockdowns and they forced all that to happen, that was, and you could look at it just as political as anything else, a way to bring down all the economic success that we had and say, what are you talking about? We're worse off than we were because we're locked down. Um, and I'm the same way. And there were things that, um, yes, the Trump administration did well. I had said that the, the tax cuts didn't go deep enough because um, he just wanted to basically put his name on tax cuts and say, I got tax cuts through. Um, because then he did that and then started adding tariffs and stuff like that. Um, so tariffs and um, his his uh, his foreign policy was on point too. So this isn't a foreign policy discussion, but as we are starting to see now, when it comes to you know what's happening with Israel and and, and North Korea and everything like that, those policies, those foreign policy um, issues, really worked under the Trump administration. So if there's two things that I give him credit for was the economy and his foreign policy. <laughs> you know, it was such a breath of fresh air to hear a Republican president speak out against endless war. You know, I was oh my God. wonderful. And yeah. I think so many libertarians have been really harsh towards Rand Paul, but I give Rand Paul a lot of credit for that. You know, he, he managed to stay in a, in, a, in a lane where Trump had, you know, he had Trump's ear, Trump respected him, they had a good relationship, he would push back when he needed to. Yeah. But I, I really, as somebody who works in politics and knows how hard that would have been, like, I, I give him so much credit, and oh, I really yeah. think we owe a lot to Rand Paul. I, I don't know that I believe Trump would have not entered another war and not been for him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I think that, I think there was really strong work being done. I, I thought yeah. it was also refreshing to see a lot of the um, talking points on criminal justice reform that came out under that administration. So there were some highlights. There were some good things. Certainly the tax cuts didn't go far enough. Certainly they didn't cut spending like they needed to, you yeah. know, and a lot of criticism oh, was yeah. for that as well. There is but. absolutely, because we spent, I mean, we had so many trillion dollar bills that when, I mean, he was spending more than Obama did in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. he, he was outspending the revenue that he was creating. Um, and I think we missed a lot of opportunities. As somebody who used to be in the Tea Party myself, it's just more the same when it came to Republicans, in my opinion. That's exactly right. I kind of had my awakening around like 2013, 2014 of like, hang on a second, Republicans don't actually support limited government or vote for lower taxes? Wait, what's happening? You know, just all of a sudden like recognizing yeah. what was really going on behind the scenes. And it was a huge awakening for me. Everybody thinks that I became more libertarian because of Ron Paul because so many people yeah. in my age group did, but I was not a Ron Paul fan. I actually was one of those people that was like, don't you dare split the vote. We have to get Mitt Romney and beat Obama. <laughs> that was who I was. And <laughs> so, sorry, Ron Paul. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that was kind of my awakening of like, wait a second, you know, yeah. we're, we're saying all this rhetoric, we're not actually living up to it, and it really forced me to go and figure out where I belonged and what I actually believed. Yeah, I was I was very much in the same in the same boat. I was a Ron Paul supporter when he was running. Um, the only thing I couldn't get behind was his foreign policy. And then I graduated college in 2009, so I'm dating myself a little bit. <laughs> but I graduated in 2009 and I joined the army um, as a um, as a logistics officer. And we start to see foreign policy from a, a global perspective and actually understand how things work. It's kind of like the economy. You start looking at the individual pieces and how everything has kind of worked together and how they're trying to do the same thing as they do with the economy mm -hmm. um, and manipulate this piece over here and this piece over here to make everything kind of function right. And then you realize how just fucked up that really is. <laughs> yeah, I think I was going to mention this to you, but I love how many um, former members of the military are in the liberty movement. It's yeah. always so interesting to me, and I just I really wish we could elevate those voices more because I think um, I would say the average person I, I speak with who's been in the military at some point has some very strong libertarian ideas. No, you're absolutely right. Most people, I mean, there's something to be said about a group of people that can go in and not have and basically take their biases from government away and get along when you really look at society and how society has started to you know everything's now become about racist and homophobia and all these this culture war where that hasn't really affected the military the military goes out and does its job and they don't have those same issues as culture does so there's something to be said about that and it, it really does and it really opens your eyes when you're in it um, to see just really how the government operates um, and how government budgets operate because I, I, again I was a logistics officer so we had the the budgeting officers right next to us and stuff like that so we're working on how much money is being spent and stuff like that and you're just like oh my god you're just <laughs> wasting money left and right this is just not fiscally responsible at right. all um, so you really do um, you're, you really get that good sense now that you're here in Georgia Shane Hazel is the person to talk to. He's running for governor of the state of Georgia next year, and he is a former Marine, and he... I know, I know Shane. I've, I've been on his show, I think, oh, a while you? back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been... It's so funny. I know all these people from Twitter. I'm like, yeah, I know Shane. I've never met Shane. But yeah. Shane and I have been Twitter friends for a while, and I did this show a while back, and yeah, I like Shane a lot. Yeah, exactly, because like you said, me and you have been friends for a while, and this is the first time we've ever met in person because you just you just got here. So. Mm -hmm. It's so funny because I really do feel like I talk to some people on Twitter more than I do like people I actually know in real life. Yeah. So you start to feel very close with people. Well, and I've been meeting more and more Twitter friends these last few weeks and everything like that and then I've made some some of my best friends are people that I've met on Twitter because they kind of get you the people in the liberty movement are very close um yeah I met Shane last year at a Joe Jorgensen campaign event mm -hmm. here in Atlanta and I met Ryan Graham and we were talking about this on, on a couple weeks ago is I met him at that event and we didn't even realize who each other were until we were talking the other day I said oh yeah I was hanging out with Shane at the Jorgensen campaign event and he was like, well, I was hanging out with Shane. I'm like, oh, then. <laughs> oh, we already met. <laughs> we probably shook hands and I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, you were telling me that the area is pretty libertarian, so I'm really excited about that because yes. I have not been in very libertarian places most of my life. I was in Nashville for a long time, which is very, very blue, and then obviously had a quick stint in New York City, which is very blue, and then for the past year I've been in South Carolina, which is polar opposite, super, <laughs> super red. So. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I grew up in Michigan, so it's – it's a little bit different because Michigan has always been a blue state, um, mm -hmm. even though they swapped blue and red uh, governors. Um, 
but they've also been more liberty minded as well when it came to like the Second Amendment and stuff like that because everybody's hunters up there. So yeah, they don't want to give that stuff up. But Georgia is one of these places, and especially the city of Atlanta. It's everybody carries a gun, and nobody really cares who you are. <laughs> perfect. It's perfect. It's my kind of people. <laughs> yeah. Leave people alone and let them have their guns. Exactly. It's perfect. <laughs> perfect city. <laughs> I think we uh, we covered everything. We cover so, all our bases. I think we got everything. Um, thank you again for coming on yeah. and explaining everything. We will have to get together a whole lot more and, and, and talk more of this stuff because there's just so many so much happening right now in the liberty community and the economic community and just in politics in general. So Absolutely. again, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. And make sure that you go and click the click the link below to subscribe to this channel. Um, more amazing guests like Hannah coming on here pretty soon. And again, go to the GoFundMe and help support um, this business that we're in right now, which is uh, Manuel's Tavern. Thank you again. <laughs>